Welcome to the Momentum Matters podcast, where we have courageous conversations with women leaders. You'll hear about their accomplishments, their experiences, their challenges, and best advice. If you're inspired by women who have overcome the barriers and gone on to do extraordinary things, you are in the right place. Today on Momentum Matters, we're speaking with Bobby Knight. She is the president of Miles College in HBCU in Fairfield, Alabama. She'll be sharing her unique perspective on the issues facing women in leadership today, especially women of color. Now here's our host, April Benatolo, CEO at Momentum Leaders, a Birmingham-based nonprofit on a mission to advance women in leadership. So President Knight, Thank you so much for making the time to come here. I know that, I mean, I can't imagine potentially a worse place to be (laughs) than in higher education right now with a pandemic going on, um, except for maybe in healthcare. (laughs) It really, April, it's not that bad. It really isn't. And when you have a great team of folks to work with, it makes it so much easier. But um, it's not bad for me. I'm tired, uh, but it's, uh, it's, you know, it's it's going okay. It's going pretty well. Good, good. So just for our audience and, and for me as well, I would love to hear a little bit about little Bobby. <laughs> Bobby growing up and, and your your childhood. Where, where are you from? I'm from Birmingham. What, what's the story of your roots? So um, I am actually from a little community called Zion City. It's between Eastlake and... Uh, and the airport there in and Roebuck there's a little triangle maybe I grew up um, in a a family of well there were five children I'm the baby and um, my mother and father my father died when I was 14 Um, but I will tell you that I was raised in a village Zion City everybody who grew up we knew each other Um, everybody's parents could punish us or chastise us or um, make love us on you or love on you. us. It was, you know, we could go, we went to each other's houses and we would eat. Every Everybody's table was open. Everybody's refrigerator was open. So it really was a village. Our, uh, our church was in our neighborhood. Our school was in our neighborhood. Um, the, actually the principal of the high, of the grammar school I went to, lived in our neighborhood, and a lot of our teachers. And so it truly was a village and, and a more a little protected uh, because of the times that I grew up, which was in the early 60s. And so, because um, I was born in 1956, so I started school right at the height of the civil rights uh, struggles and, and issues in Birmingham. So when you say it was a little bit protected, tell me yeah, more. Yeah, so... You know, I've shared this story before with some people, but um, but I was, uh, so my sister and I are the two youngest. My oldest brother is so much older that I didn't grow up in the house with him. He was, he left to go to college when I was a baby. <clears throat> and um, he went to Tuskegee and he joined the Air Force. And um, when he married and moved back to the mainland, he was stationed at Biloxi, Mississippi. So my parents, one Sunday morning, were, uh, were driving. Uh, they drove his new wife down to Biloxi to meet him. And um, on the way down, they heard on the car radio that a Baptist church was bombed in Birmingham and that um, four little girls were killed 
and that they were in the basement of the church. Well, I was in a Baptist church. We went to a Baptist church, and we went to Sunday school in the basement, and they were, my parents were frantic. They had no idea whether it was our church or whether it was their, their little girls. And so um, they stopped at a gas station to try to phone home, and they were not able to use the, the phone because they were black. And so they kept driving, so every time they had the opportunity to stop somewhere and try, they couldn't because they were black. When they finally reached uh, Biloxi, my brother told them that everything was okay. I did not find out about that until I was an adult. So my mother was incredible. I, and you know what? I tell people, if I could have been half the woman my mother was, I'd be amazing. She raised five children. She worked two jobs. I never knew her not to work, but I never knew a time when we didn't have breakfast, a hot breakfast in the morning on the table before we went to school, and dinner at the table when we came home. I don't know how she did it. I, I literally have no idea, and she was amazing. Uh, my mother was a pastry chef uh, at one point with Pazit's Bake Shop <clears throat> in Birmingham. So she was a fabulous cook, uh, and especially pastries. But we never went with... I, she could make a Something meal. Exactly, yeah. which a lot of our mothers could do. And, uh, you know, I think women today probably don't have that skill because we do fast food stuff and... And whatever we can pop in the microwave. Dinner delivery. Oh, yes. dinner delivery. Thank God for, for that. But um, she was incredible. She could sew. She made our clothes. She made clothes for me and my sister. I don't, yeah, I know, right? I don't yeah. know. How, and she, did she, she had her own garden. Yes, she did at some point. She had her own garden in the backyard. She grew vegetables at a time when, you know, it was before we were all into this organic stuff. But she grew uh, beans and tomatoes and uh, turnips and collards and squash and all of that and she canned <laughs> I just don't know I, when I say my mother was incredible she absolutely was incredible phenomenal mm -hmm. what a role model mm -hmm. and the sweetest woman you ever want to meet yeah well then I see how you came to be who you are <laughs> I'm not as sweet as she is but or she was but um, but she was incredible yeah that's amazing so she she was determined to see all five of you go to college, particularly her girls. Yeah, um, my mother's constantly told us, "You're going to go to college, me and my sister, because you will never have to depend on a man." That was she didn't say anything to the boys like that because she figured, you know what, they're going to make it somehow. Right. But she was really concerned about her girls, and um, what great insight! I know, her. right? Yeah. That's fabulous for her, especially for her generation. Yes, exactly. So, um, when you graduated from college, mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about your your path to uh, through your career progression. Okay, and maybe the impact that being a black woman had along that. that yeah. Path. So. Um, uh, I started at Alabama Power Company right out of college. I wanted to be in broadcasting. I wanted to be in radio. I can see that. And um, not on TV, but on, on radio. And so <clears throat> I was trying to sell a concept of a jazz radio show, late night radio show, called The Night Owl. 
I'll never forget it. I thought it was so clever. I had a you could logo still and do everything. It. You could still do it. <laughs> In my next life, maybe. But um, so that's what I was trying to do. And every time I went to a radio station, they said, well, you don't have any experience and you have to bring in your own advertisers. Well, I'm right out of college. I just like, okay, what am I going to do? So my mother said, well, why don't you just find a job and then you can try to work on that in the part time, but, but get you something to, to make some money. So I went to the newspaper and I saw a job and it was for a customer service rep at Alabama Power Company working two in the afternoon until 10 at night. I said, okay, I'm going to apply for it. And I did, and I got the job. And I did continue to try to work my program during the day, and then I worked at night. Um, But after about, I think it was 18 months working at the power company, I decided I don't want to do customer service, um, so let's just see what else is out here at the company. And there was a, a position open in human resources that required writing skills. Well, I'm a great writer. I majored in communications, um, so I applied for the position, and, and it was in uh, salary administration, and I did job evaluation. So I went around the company, and I interviewed people about what they did, and then I had to write their position descriptions, and then we took it back to analyze it and attach a, a level and a rate range to it. Okay. So that was my first professional job. Funny thing is, every job that I've had in the company has used my communication skills. Every every last one. Mm-hmm. The writing, the speaking, whatever. Every last one. Because I felt like I was a reporter. Because I had to talk to people. Right. And then I had to figure out, write down, analyze what they're telling me, all of that. So that was my first job. And, uh, and what a perspective that must have given you on all the roles in the company. Absolutely. That and the customer service rep, because I learned a lot about what it means to serve the customer. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember when I started, Mary Rollins told me one day, I was in training for the customer service rep, and she said, Bobby, I want you to put your grandmother's face on the customer on the other end of that phone and treat everybody like you want them to treat your grandmother. And so that stuck with me throughout I tried never to get angry, and let me tell you, customers can be incredibly challenging, but uh, I always remembered that, you know, I'm talking to my grandmother, or Mm -hmm. I'm talking to my grandfather, or what have you. Um, But that was a different perspective that women had. But that perspective is, you know, compassion, compassion for our customer. Mm -hmm. And I don't ever remember getting that lesson from a man, which is interesting. Um, Was most of the department women? The majority were. Mm -hmm. At that time, the majority were. Um, Yeah. Especially on the shift that I worked, were women. Was there already a priority at Alabama Power at that time to hire diversity in the workforce? So, no. I, I, I don't remember the exact date, but... There was a lawsuit. It was a class action lawsuit prior to me coming on board, and it was filed by a woman, a, a white female. Uh, I cannot remember her name, but the um, class action lawsuit challenged the way uh, women, particularly with degrees like I had, were brought in in 
uh, non-professional positions. Yeah. And so women and minorities actually benefited from the result of Susan Woods. It was a Susan Woods lawsuit. Okay. Uh, they benefited from uh, that lawsuit. So they did shortly after put in place a, an initiative to um, bring more minorities and females into professional positions and put, a, put them in what wasn't called a pipeline at that time, but in what was a pipeline. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. That makes sense. So how do you feel that your race and your gender played out for you during your career at Alabama Power? <laughs> so, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm one of these people that I, I have always tried to um, use my race and gender as an advantage and, and not see it as a disadvantage. But I can tell you that um, I often felt invisible. Uh, often, I can't tell you the number of times I felt invisible. Like nobody saw me. And whether they didn't see me because I was a woman or because I was black, I don't know. But I felt invisible and unheard many times. You know, a prior guest on this podcast, well, you know Myla Calhoun. Oh, sure, yeah. Of course yeah. you do. Um, she used the word unseen. Yeah, it, it's it's uncanny. And even when I went higher up in the organization, I often you know, I you'd be at the table, right, and you make a comment or make a suggestion, and it would get ignored for a man to come back and make the very same comment and suggestion, and everybody applauds. Oh, that's great. Let's do it. Yes. And you. I'm like, wait a minute, didn't I just say that? But anyway, it's been a challenge. I'm not going to tell you. It, it, it was a constant uphill climb, but one that I was okay with because I knew I could make it. Mm -hmm. And I just like, I'm not going to let anybody stand in my way. When you say you at times felt unseen and, and not heard, mm -hmm. what were some of the ways that you got around that? So that's a great question. Um, I didn't learn, I didn't develop this on my own, this concept, but uh, I watched how other people worked, other men worked, and I learned that I needed to get my, uh, my support. And so I would go around, particularly when I became a much higher level, uh, in a much higher level leader in the company, I would make sure that I got my support. So I might go and meet with the vice president of um, engineering or, you know, or the manager of this group or whatever, whatever. And I would put my case out. And can I count on you when we're at the table and in the president's meeting to support me? Right. I did it every time, and it works. Did it, you know naturally to do that? No, that no, no. Just, I no. did not know naturally. I watched people do it. Okay. I watched other people do it. And it's, um, I had the advantage of working for Chris Womack, who was just named president of Georgia Power. I was Womack's assistant, too, um, and Womack was probably the second uh, African-American officer at Alabama Power Company. And he is the best at 
networking, negotiating, and building um, alliances that I've ever seen. And I watched him work. And because I sat right there with him and an assistant to position at, at, at um, Alabama Power Company and Southern Company is a leadership development position. So you work either for the president or you work for uh, an officer and basically learn the ropes. You learn the organization. You kind of know what's about to happen. You know what's about to happen. And um, the, the one thing you have to do is you have to have support of the executive assistant or the executive secretary. And so that's the first person you have to win over uh, because that person can make you or break you. But they'll share information with you. They'll help you learn and and tell you, you know, who to avoid and who not to avoid. So uh, that's such a level of um, organizational awareness. (laughs) It's required. If you don't know your culture that you're working in, you well, you won't make it. So right. you have to learn that culture. And every organization has one. And how did you develop your own your own self-awareness? Hmm. How did you figure out this is Bobby Knight's style and not somebody Mr. Else's. Womack's yeah, style? Yeah, right. I... Oh wow! I ne- nobody's ever asked me that question, and so I have to I have to really think about it. Um, I don't know. I, I have no idea. Uh, the one thing that I can tell you is that I've always been me, and when I come into a room or when I uh, meet with people, I'm Bobby Knight, Bobby Jean from Zion City, and I I don't know how to be anybody else, and so uh, perhaps. Just being me, I didn't develop into anything. I just never lost me. Does That's that make sense? Beautiful. Yes. And tell me how it came to be that you took on this position as president at Miles College. So I was actually serving on the board of trustees, and uh, I think I had been on the board of trustees for two years. And the the president at the time left to take a position in Atlanta with Clark Atlanta University. And uh, I got a call one day from um, a consultant to the college, and he said, hey, uh, I need to meet with you. And I'm like, okay, what about? Well, I can't talk to you about it over the phone. You need to tell me what it is you want to talk about before I'm going to tell you I'll meet you. I mean, it was just bizarre. The whole thing was kind of bizarre. So he said, please meet me. Just meet me at, uh, I can't even remember where we're going to. And it was on a Monday because where I met him, you know how restaurants close on Mondays in Birmingham down on the south side? Yeah. The restaurant was closed. So we sat outside in front of the restaurant. And I said, okay, what is this big secret? And he said, um, they want you to be interim president of Miles College. I said, they who? And, and why? You know, it was like a bizarre. I, I just didn't even believe he was he was saying this to me. And he said, "Well, you know, the board chair and some others they're really interested in you taking this on." And I said, "Okay, I don't know anything about being a college president." And he said, "Well, you know, it's not because of your academic background because we know you don't have that, but um, they really need you uh, right now." So I said, 
It, well, he said, board chair wants to know if you'll meet with her and, and have lunch. And by the way, she's the first female board chair. I was going to say. And uh, the first female bishop in the CME Church, which founded Miles College. Wow. So uh, this, this was all kind of interesting. So I said, okay, I'll have lunch with you guys, but I'm not making a commitment. So I went home and I told my husband, and he said, well, talk to them and see what they're talking about. You know, we don't have to make a decision right now. So I did go, and a girlfriend of mine was, was and her husband were visiting from Florida. Uh, she works for Apple. And I went to lunch, I came back, and I told her, y'all, they want me to be the interim president, yada, yada. And they said, nine months. She said, oh, Bobby, that's my dream job. When I retire from Apple, you need to do it. And so I I talked to my husband. I said, Gary, what do you think? Blah, blah, blah. He said, well, it's just nine months. I said, okay, I'll do it. So I called him back. and I told We've him all I heard it. that before. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so then we're getting ready to negotiate my, my contract. And the, and the board chair says, well, let's just make it 12 months. I said, okay, wait. Nine months. Tw- okay, I'll do 12 months. So we get in there. And so I, I just... Start. I hit the ground running. I had so much to do, and uh, I knew I needed to bring someone strong in on the academic side, so I brought in Dr. Geraldine Agee. Uh, I called Mayor Randall Woodman, and I said, Mayor, I need to borrow. I need you to loan me Dr. Agee. And he said, well, what, did, what is that? How much time? I said, well, I don't know. I said, my contract is for 12 months, so I can say 12 months. I just, in case she doesn't want to do it, or if, in case she's hesitant about leaving the city and not having a place to come back to, I need you to, to say she can come back. I said, oh, and by the way, you don't have to pay her. I'm going to pay her. We're going to pay her to school. He said, okay, call her. So I called her. Well, I called her boss first at Fields, and then I called her, and she said, oh, I would love to. And so she came on board, and, um, and so I had the academic side now. I felt comfortable having somebody that I could trust mm-hmm. on the academic side because I didn't know a lot of people uh, at Miles. Um, but anyway, we, we hit the ground running. We, we had a lot of momentum going. <laughs> you know? And so at the board of directors meeting on March 5th, they asked me to be permanent. Um, it was somewhat shocking uh, because actually, March 5th, and then like a week, maybe a week later, we were sitting in a room talking about how we were going to shut down the campus. So that was my introduction right. to being permanent president. We, we had students, some students were crying having to leave the campus, especially seniors, because, you know, what did that mean for them? They spent all of this time in higher ed, and they don't get to March, you know, they finish with their friends and have their families come and, and um, cheer them on. Um, but it, you're exactly right. We were fortunate that the community stepped up and organizations, individuals, to provide gas cards for students so that they could have uh, money to drive home or uh, bus or buy bus tickets so they would get cash cards or we flew some students home to California or other parts of the country that were uh, harder, more challenging to get to. And many of them did not have a place to go. And they have the, the double whammy that, of course, we all have right now of the pandemic and this social 
Oh my God! Yes, absolutely. It would, you and know, the political yeah circus. I, I don't know how they keep their sanity mm. because it was when you think about what was going on back in during the all of the George Floyd protest. Um, looking at what was happening in our country, I, I it, it made you cry. It's just mm-hmm. like what what's going to happen here? What is? How are these young people going to survive? in a, a country that's so divided and, and where they, particularly our students that are, the majority of our students are black, uh, but for, and the majority of our students are male, which, which is interesting because most college campuses you have majority female, but for, for them every day to be faced with these potential issues of, you know, my life could be taken away from me. Right. For nothing. For nothing. For for being black. Well, and that has always been the case. Yeah. But you know, it's, but, but it's 2020. Having, right. It shouldn't be that it, way. Of course not. Yeah. Your students are at a point in their life, and I do remember, even though it was a long time ago, I do remember being a freshman in college, mm-hmm. um, of, of still figuring out who they are, mm-hmm. um, trying to figure out what they want to do with yeah. their life. And they are the majority black mm-hmm. and um, it doesn't matter if you are a black male or a black female there are each one of those has their own challenges inherent challenges <laughs> yes mm-hmm. and and that make that age also very difficult so I guess what I want to ask you about that is um, how do you see specifically the the gender and a minority coming together um, as a challenge, and what what can give some women of color hope yeah. <laughs> that they can also get to where they could also be a Bobby Knight. Yeah. So uh, I am um, I'm I'm jazzed about the role of women in society today. I. I think the sky is the limit. I encourage my nieces and my great nieces and my you know little cousins and and students. You can do. You can be. You can be anything. Kamala Harris is a perfect example. Yeah, you know, a little black girl and black and Asian girl running for vice president of this country who went to an HBCU, mm-hmm. Howard University. Um, when you when you look at that, that's how it ought be right now. Um, I'm I'm still in shock that I'm the first female president at Miles. Miles was uh, chartered in 1898, and and the fact that it took this long, mm-hmm. it, it blows my mind. Um, it shouldn't be. There are still challenges for women, but and um, and black women. But when you have um, women that you can look up to and, and aspire to be or aspire to be like, when you uh, recognize that your voice is just as good as any man's, I think recognizing that is a big part of being successful and making your mark on society, knowing your voice and not being afraid to put it out there. The Momentum Matters podcast thanks our Trailblazer sponsor, Protective Life. For additional sponsors, please check our website, 
MomentumLeaders.org backslash sponsors. Signing off, this is Karen Taradas from Social U.